0: It's Cardboard Time, episode number 71, and I'm your host, Arwen Kathke. On today's episode, we have reviews of Velocirapture, Spellbook, and an interview with Joe Kelly on the back end. Let's talk about that shelf of shame right away. It is at 143, and for those who pay close attention during the podcast, you will notice that that is down by 10 games. And I will explain to you in a minute where all those games went, but first, let's talk about the games I acquired. There were six new games in my collection. The first four were purchases, Goblin Vault. I picked up at Con the Cobb. And I'm gonna do a little side diatribe about Con the Cobb here. Uh, Con the Cobb was a fantastic little convention. It's very weird. It's very entertaining and kind of amazing. Uh, I've never had a convention before where I've pet snakes and saw turtles and uh, walked around an old uh, what what I would consider a old holiday and holodome for those who are old like me and remember those from when you're a kid. Uh, Yeah, basically that's where this takes place with a pool in the center and like a little arcade and uh, atrium that smells of chlorine wasn't nearly as bad this year as it was in other years. So uh, yeah, we had a ton of fun. We didn't actually play any games there proper, uh, but we did walk around the dealer room. I did have some stuff in the auction, which um, may give you a clue as to something I'm going to talk about in a minute. And uh, yeah, just had a great time and uh, went back to Matt and Lori's. We were there with uh, Jordan and Bernie and Allie as well. And, uh, you know, we played some games back at Matt and Lori's house, uh, which we'll get to in a minute. So, Goblin Vaults was one that I did pick up in the dealer room at Colin the Cobb. It was. $15, $15, I had been meaning to pick it up at some point, and this was the point that it was about my price point, and I said, yep, let's let's do this. Velocirapture, I wanted to support Zoe so Allred's first game, so I picked it up and uh, placed an order at Hollenspiel for that, so that came in. Letter Jam and Spellbook I picked up at Critical Hit Games, and there is a story to be told there later when I talk about Spellbook in just a minute. There is one Kickstarter rival, and that was the Royal Limited. That was a button-shy Kickstarter. It's a solo game uh, that I also did get to play. And then finally, a little gift came for me in the mail. The King's Dilemma was a early birthday gift. Thanks to Maddie. Uh, Wonderful friend. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to play this. I'm looking forward to it so much. Not, you know, not for nothing, but uh, somebody hyped it up a little bit for me. And I had really been interested in checking that one out as well. So uh, once I get a group together that's wanting to play that, uh, I've got a couple of different campaign games that need to be played. So that one's definitely going on the priority shelf very soon. Uh, So those games that were played, I played six, uh, the aforementioned Goblin Vaults, uh, Motor City, Queen by Midnight. Now, Queen by Midnight is one that I don't want to judge right now until I get a second play of it. A very interesting experience, and I do want to give it another chance if I can because now I have a reference sheet. A lot of rules issues with this game, and I would like to give everything another chance with the improved rule set and the rules reference i think that would make things a little bit more clear make things a little bit more smooth than our first playthrough of it which was kind of disastrous to be honest uh, the royal limited we also um i got to play by myself sat down and played a few rounds of that Velocirapture, we got to play after Colin the Cobb, and Spellbook, I also got to play. So you're probably wondering, where are those 10 games that you talked about from your shelf of shame? And the answer is, I sold them at the Colin the Cobb auction. I looked at my shelves. These were games that I had been trying to sell that I haven't been able to really, you know. get get rid of um you know a, a couple of them were multi-time uh flea market candidates at conventions and just wasn't able to uh sell them there so uh those 10 games were burn in hell uh founders of gloomhaven sentinels tactics homeland the game welcome to the Czech pub spells of doom bootleggers mage wars academy Crisis Tokyo, and those pesky humans. Just looking at these games, uh, they're not really games that really excite me, that really wow me, that are things that I really want to sit down and invest the time at this point. And shelf space. I mean, I'm looking at my shelf space. It's becoming more of a premium these days and something that's not going to excite me should really wind up in somebody else's hands and they can give it a better home than i can um founders of gloomhaven hurt a little bit and the reason for that was uh, the fact that i kick that i paid absolutely full price for it and i never got to play it but that's the bricks and you know that's that's how things go sometimes you just have to go and let things go and i got some money for it so you know it's all good and it's hopefully in a better home where it will get played so let's get into the review section of the podcast the first game up that i wanted to talk about is velocirapture from 2023 this is a two to eight player game plays in five to whatever minutes designed by Zoe allred art by Zoe Allred, and published by Hollenspiel. A comet speeds towards the Earth. When it collides, you and every other dinosaur you know will die. But talking about that is, quote, a bummer, and, quote, we don't want to think about that right now, and, quote, why are you like this? And after all, it is game night in Velociraptor, you play as dinos playing human games while waiting for the end. Each dino's unique coping mechanism prevents them from thinking too hard about their mortality. Zoe Alred brings a characteristic playfulness and charm to this experimental and delightfully meta party game made up of three dozen small games that are by turns surprising, compelling, irreverent, and perplexing. So I did pick this up from Hollenspiel. I got to meet Zoe last year at uh, PAXU and wanted to support it. Zoe goes by it and its pronouns. Uh, So if I say it, chances are I'm referring to Zoe. This game is hard for me to do a standard review on, and that's probably partly the point. I think Zoe did this intentionally, and let me get the very obvious things for me to say out of the way. This is mainly a series of sequential games that you play. You set a time and you say, I want to play until somebody comes to play another game or I'm going to play this for five minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes, whatever. Uh, so, this is just a series of sequential mini games that you're going to play back to back to back to back. Uh, the coping mechanisms are what add a little bit of spice and flavor. It's really one of my favorite parts of the game, uh, seeing these very unique coping mechanisms, which change the way that you play these very simple little me- uh, mini games. And I say simple. Some of them aren't. I don't want to spoil things for you, <laughs> uh, but at the end of the game, a meteor hits the Earth and everyone's dead, even in the middle of one of the mini games, and that's it. And you're probably asking yourself, who's the winner? Who who wins at the end of this? Who you know? And that's up for you to decide. Uh, Zoe's work is usually very experimental. Uh, this is no different using the meta of the game it kind of made us think about the major reasons that we play games because at the end of the day nobody wins except maybe you all win and and at the end of the game the important thing is that everyone had fun playing with their friends at least i think i'm pretty sure that's the lesson that i learned It's a very interesting exercise in playing games, in determining what games really mean to you and why you play them. And it comes in a 36 card, I believe, package with a few wooden bits and a bag. And that's kind of impressive to me. Um, You know, I don't want to talk too much about the specific of the games, Uh, because I don't want to spoil the experience of discovering what's in the box and the conversations that you have around the table. But the experience that we had with this was really kind of magic. I haven't had a huge amount of games go this way where people just dive into it and wonder what the heck am I getting into. There were asks for rules clarifications, which I'm like, i Don't think that this is the point of the game. Let's just figure out a way of playing this and um, go with it. And I I think that's, again, the whole point of this game is to have those conversations and to uh, really have that experience with your friends. So getting back more on a serious note, uh, there were no color vision issues with this. Everything was labeled, uh, you know, just fine. Uh, Everything had symbols that you were working with and numbers or letters, so that was absolutely fine. This is easy enough to take with you in a purse or a backpack uh, if you just take the little pouch that's inside of the box. Uh, The big box is a little bit big for the contents of what's inside, but Hollenspiel is an independent publisher I'm not going to fault them too much for it. Uh, the box, again, was just a little bit big, but I think th- this absolutely works, uh, and I would rather have the size of the box that they they put it in as opposed to the standard size Hollenspiel box. So uh, my final thoughts on this one, if you're one to take your game super seriously uh, and you need to play by the letter of the rules, you hate ambiguity and you want everything spelled out for you, this won't be for you. And I'm absolutely sure that that's intentional. I think that's what Zoe's intention in designing this game is, um, is is to be a little bit vague in some cases, and to make you have those conversations. Uh, If you really want a fun experience, to have some great times with your friends, uh, while waiting for whatever, Uh, or you want something to make you think about why you play games, I think this fits the bill perfectly. I really want to try this out with a different group of people and see how they react to it. I think this is one that I'm going to be keeping around and introducing it to people. I think that's really the magic of where this game is, is that first introduction where you sit down for... Five to ten minutes with your friends and say we're going to play this and here's how it goes super easy to tell them how to play but the the magic of just what the heck are we playing and why the heck are we playing it and then having people realize that that is the whole point of the game is very very interesting to me so uh, so we did a really good job with this I can't wait to see what its next game brings. And I'm definitely going to be on board uh, because I thought that this was a neat little game. So that was Velocirapture. And let's talk about another game from 2023, and that is Spellbook. It is to 1-4 players, 45 minutes, designed by Phil Walker-Harding, art by Cyril Burton, and published by Space Cowboys. Become the greatest wizard of the annual Grand Rite by collecting and managing your materia to feed your familiar and learn your spells. Act quickly to use your powers early or wait to unleash them at full strength. Your path to victory is full of choices and combined tactics. In spellbook, each player accompanied by a familiar possesses a grimoire and collects materia to master spells and feed their familiar. The game provides pre-drawn spell sets for use in the early rounds, but soon players start drawing spells randomly or create their own spell combinations that are common to all players. Each spell combination gives an effect that lasts the rest of the game, and the more ingenious the combination, the more powerful the effect. As the rounds progress, the game becomes a different experience every time, with more than 2,100 spell combinations being possible. The game ends as soon as a magician's grimoire is complete or a familiar is fully fed, then the player with the most points wins. Spellbook also includes a solo mode that closely mirrors a multiplayer experience, offering a high level of challenge and an excellent way to learn the game's rules. So I realized partway through that that I had no idea how to pronounce Grimoire. Uh, I hope that I'm pronouncing that right. It's it's a little Spellbook. They they could have just said Spellbook. Um, But anyways, uh, so... I saw a lot of people talking about this game post Gen Con, and instead of going to Critical Hit in Cleveland Heights to get Medium, like I was supposed to for a party we have coming up, I wound up with this and Letter Jam uh, because Medium was on back order for them. So I had to buy something, and uh, Letter Jam was more for the party. Medium or uh, Spellbook rather was basically here for me to go and play solo and experience and and give my thoughts on, um, you know, I, I generally like Phil Walker Harding stuff. It's kind of hit or miss in some cases for me, like Baron Park was kind of a miss, um, but I, I do like uh, some of his other games. So this is really a race game at its core. You're trying to get to the end as efficiently as possible and have the most points by the end game trigger. Um, This really does focus on efficiency. It is an efficiency engine that you are trying to build and try to pretty much end the game when it's best for you. Um, those tend to pique my interest it tends to be a game type that I am very interested in and usually pushes the right buttons for me Uh, the pre-drawn spell sets are okay you have basically three different spells of each color every player has the same basically deck of spells that Um, each color of materia that you have corresponds to one of those spell types. So you have three different spells in each of those materia types. And if you play at the starting level, you're going to take all the level one spells, put them out there. Everybody takes all the level one spells, puts them out there. Then you're supposed to graduate up to level two And then you're supposed to graduate up to level three. And then they say, okay, now you can go and play the, uh, you know, random game or the the normal game of this. And I think, you know, the pre-drawn spell sets are okay. They work together okay. The meat of the game is really going to be in that normal mode where you are going to take and... You're going to shuffle up the three of each materia, you're going to pick one, and then everybody is going to look at the one that you picked and get the same one for them for each each of the other players. And playing that way is going to be really where this game shines, because you're going to have a random combination uh, people who have played this before and have played those base games a lot are just going to destroy newer players who haven't played this before. Um, but the the random combinations, and I, I don't think it's really that bad of an idea to just step into the random combinations. I don't think, unless you're a newer uh, board gamer... There's nothing really preventing you from just stepping in and saying, okay, I'm going to do this. I think it's fine. You <laughs> just, just go the random combinations. You're going to be okay. Uh, there's no need to kind of work your way up um, because that's really where the magic is figuring out how to set that engine up, figuring out how to make that work, um, I do like that everybody has the exact same card set. It makes it fair, makes it, um, you know, even. I don't think that this would work without it, so I'm glad to see it. As it is, one player might wind up with a little bit of an early advantage based on what they draw and how they draw. Uh, That is a random element that if you don't like that random element of chance, especially early on, That may be an issue for you because one player can get a couple of random draws that really benefit them and they can get a good engine going very, very quickly, um, which may wind up leaving you behind. Um, But I don't think that it's too bad. I don't think it's bad enough that I would dock the game points for that. um, But that is a factor. Production on this was mixed. I like the acrylic tiles. They're a very nice quality. They add a fantastic dimensionality to the runes. Uh, some of the the surfaces, you're going to have to peel off some of the film uh, that was left on, at least in my copy. I have seen a couple of other people that have had to take that film off. It's not that big of a deal. You just go and, and peel it off if it's bothering you. Not a big deal at all. Uh, but very good quality. they they really do add a nice uh, dimensionality and a nice sharpness to the runes. Um, the bag was great. Uh, the the player boards themselves were great, nice sickness. They look like they're gonna hold up very nicely. Uh, the cards didn't feel like the greatest quality. I'm not sure if it was the sharp edges or the material that they were made of. They just didn't feel like I would normally like a card. They did feel a little bit, I don't want to say cheap, but um, they didn't feel like super robust. Uh, As far as color vision goes, for me, there was a very minor issue um, and that was only that in some cases, it took me a minute to figure out the difference between the blue and the purple tiles, but I would look at the background. Um, so you have this acrylic tile, there's a rune symbol, and then there is a layer in the middle that is uh, colored and has a certain pattern. You just look at the pattern and you say, okay, you know, this is this, this is that. Um, it's, it's nothing that truly hindered my gameplay. It just did take me a minute to look and say, oh yeah, this is this, this is that. Um, but everything was double coded. It was very nice to have that. Uh, if you didn't have that in this game, it would be impossible to play. Um, so I'm glad that they did that. Um, and I think that they did probably the best job that they could, uh, with that, except for maybe differentiating, uh, the. Uh, blue and the purple tiles, it, they're both kind of bubbly. Maybe doing something different like that, but I felt that it was different enough that it wasn't a problem. The solo experience on this is quick, it's extremely easy, it's very intuitive. Um, my play times at the end, once I knew exactly what I was doing, those were falling in the 25 minute range. Once I knew exactly what i was doing so i was going i was putting down tiles you go you take a tile off the common offer and you put it on the um the automated player board and you're done and it was a really nice way to practice putting combos together you would make random combinations put them together see what you could do with it And then just repeat. Uh, So a nice puzzle. If you've got an hour, you can get two games of this out very easily uh, within that hour time frame and have a good time. So uh, for my final thoughts, I did like this as a very solid replayable efficiency game. Uh, I don't think it wowed me with anything new outside of other games in the genre, but I liked it well enough that I'm going to keep it around to... Uh, play with a bunch of the other combos so again 2100 spell combinations that are possible and um, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing some more of those and I will say for this game personally I would try this one before you buy it to see if you vibe with it I do think that some players are not gonna like this um, you know just because because of some of the randomness issues that you saw. But if you like a a nice, quick, solid efficiency puzzle and you don't have a huge amount of them already, uh, this is definitely one to check out. And who doesn't love acrylic tokens that you draw out of bags? Um, I had a lot of fun with that, and that was Spellbook. Well, stay tuned, because coming up next, we have an interview with Joe Kelly on today's interview segment we have joe kelly designer of molly house which is up on kickstarter today as of the release of this podcast joe welcome to cardboard time
1: oh thanks for having me alan it's really nice to meet you
0: it's a very big pleasure to meet you i got a chance to play molly house last week and it is a fantastic game but before we get into talking about that, uh, why don't you tell the audience a little bit more about who you are?
1: Okay, so I'm I'm a first time designer, so Molly House is the first game that I've designed, and sort of outside of designing games, I'm a musician as well. Yeah, I live here in in Bristol in the UK, and yeah, that's <laughs> that's me.
0: And can you tell us a little bit about Molly House culture? Because this was new to me, you know, first hearing about the game and that this was a period of time and a thing that I had not heard about despite, you know, being part of queer culture myself. Um, Could you tell us and tell the audience a little bit more about that?
1: So Molly houses were kind of queer meeting places that kind of you start seeing in the late 17th century. Um, all the way through the 19th century in London, um, predominantly, and in other parts of the UK. So they're kind of like queer meeting places where people who were called mollies at the time, which is a term that we don't quite have a modern equivalent of, but we can see that they probably sort of include people that we would think of as queer and trans now, who would meet up and have sort of parties and gatherings, and they did all sorts of events that they would put on a lot of which were kind of mocking cishet culture so um, they did like mock birthing ceremonies where someone would like give birth to like a jointed wooden doll or a wooden spoon or something and they would kind of go through the motion of labor and kind of holding the baby afterwards that kind of thing they also um, had christening ceremonies so a lot of mollies had maiden names which they would use Uh, In the Molly House, names like uh, Orange Deb or Garter Mary or Flying Horse Mole. There's like lots of really colourful names that they used, which tended to be kind of feminine female names that they would have. And it seems like probably some people, it was like a persona they would put on in the Molly House. And for other people, it was more of like their their true self. And they would even like use that name um, outside the Molly House. So, yeah, that's that's kind of molly houses and then the reason that we know about molly houses is because of the oppression of them basically so kind of starting in the late 17th century and into the early 18th uh, there was a group of citizens called the society for the reformation of manners and they were like a religious group who were kind of seeking to i guess stamp out vice as they saw it in in uh, london at the time and so-called sodomites was one of the target groups they were going for and they sort of ran investigations into molly houses where they would find informers who would work on the inside for them get them information and also get their constables inside the molly house kind of undercover to get information that way so uh, yeah it's like early early kind of urban london queer culture that's also kind of mixed up with all of the uh, history of policing it as well
0: yeah, so you had this culture, and it was highly illegal at the time, with penalties ranging anywhere from kind of a slap on the wrist, don't do that again, to the ultimate price in some cases. I mean, these were people that were were basically executed for, you know, just being themselves. It's a very interesting uh, period of time, and one that I feel is important now, after reading about it, that people know about and people hear about. What drove you to design a game about them?
1: So the, I guess the catalyst was hearing about the Zenobia Award, which is like a historical game award and which ran for the first time starting in 2021. So I was part of that kind of first cohort and it's kind of seeking to find people who are normally underrepresented in the historical game design community and kind of give them some mentoring to to work on their games and hopefully kind of get some more diverse games out there like games on topics that haven't really been explored before so uh, when i heard about that had a vague memory of like reading about molly houses quite a long time before and then started researching them and found it was like yeah quite a good basis for for kind of designing a game so that's where it started from
0: and people also need to know about princess Serafina, definitely a icon of the time. Princess
1: Serafina uh, was part of the Molly culture, so that was that was her maiden name that she kind of I guess donned in the in the Molly community, but she was also one of the people who used that used that name outside the Molly house as well. So she's actually one of the only Mollies that appears in multiple sources as well. So she appears in there's like a a notorious thief who uh, kind of gave a bit of a memoir when he was caught basically and he talks a bit about getting caught up in molly culture and he describes a wedding where at, at a molly house where princess serafina is one of the bridesmaids but there's uh, another place that she's mentioned which is a trial document which is where a lot of the information about molly houses comes from but unlike uh pretty much all of the other mo- trials which are like prosecuting against the mollies princess Seraphina is actually bringing a case against someone else who uh, she accuses of having stolen her clothes in this in this trial and she doesn't end up getting the prosecution but what we do have kind of from the records is she has some character witnesses who kind of speak about her and these are just kind of her neighbors in, in her community and they all know her by the name princess Serafina. they kind of talk about uh, how she's a, like a great dresser and uh, she goes out to these like big masquerade balls um, around London and uh, One of her neighbors says that they didn't know she had any other name other than the princess Serafina. So it's clear that she's like uh taken on a kind of femme identity in her like day-to-day life as well as in, in Molly culture So yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of parallels with trans women today.
0: Yeah, and I also found it very interesting that they were referring to her as, as she. Yes. They were referring to her as Princess Serafina because that's how you referred to her. And there are still some places, legislative bodies in that, that we hear about today where people will come in and testify, and they refuse to use somebody's pronouns. And I find it extremely fascinating that... All the way back, this far back, they were just saying her.
1: Yeah. So in, in my research, I was looking up, I guess, attitudes to identity in the early 18th century in particular. So basically the what I kind of found was, I guess, kind of looking at the early 18th century as being kind of wrapped up with the masquerade. The idea of like changing identity was actually, I guess, pe- people... People were quite invested in that, like they thought that that was actually like a a genuine thing that that you could do and like changing your costume would actually like change your identity um, in, in like a kind of real tangible way, even if it was one that you could like take off afterwards, but that that kind of attitude faded away towards the end of the 18th century. So, yeah, it's really like a microcosm of, I guess, a very different attitude and one that's maybe closer to how we see things I guess in in the 21st century
0: i found it absolutely fascinating another thing that i found absolutely fascinating was the history of the development of this game it has changed so much over time i saw a video from the original Zenobia entry that you had and that played much much differently from the demo that i got to play last week can you give us a brief history of some of the design changes and and development uh and how that's changed over time
1: yeah yeah so yeah there's almost there's almost so many it's hard to know where to start but the i guess the the first version I made was very different so it was a it was a two player head to head game where one player was playing as the society for the Reformation of manners and the other player was playing as like uh someone who was running a molly house it was kind of like a hidden information bluffing game where like one player was trying to get information from the molly house the other was just trying to like have a good time there but i kind of quickly realized the mollies that were in the game were kind of just playing the part of the pawns in the game and i didn't i didn't really like that idea i kind of wanted them to be the center so the next version I decided all the players would be mollies themselves and that was the position you were taking and that's kind of stayed there through through the rest of the development. So it kind of then became a push your luck game. So the idea was like you were trying to get as much joy as you could, but a bit like in a game like Ink and Gold, like there was a deck of cards and some of them were instead of being traps like they are in that they were constables. And if a certain number of constables came out, they would like start to crowd the board and it would get more and more dangerous So to like decide how long to stay in the game. But that was also like where the idea of joy as the kind of victory mechanism kind of came in. So the, yeah, the, the points in the game are called joy because queer joy is really like the ultimate aim of what the mollies were trying to do in their life and also kind of what you're trying to do in the game. So it evolved some more like it kind of got bigger and then it got smaller and it turned into a worker placement game which i think is probably the version that you saw because that was that was kind of what it was like when when i submitted it for the final judging for the Zenobia award and then after that that was when i kind of talked to cole so cole Worley was my mentor throughout the Zenobia process and he sort of gave a tentative offer of like do you want to work with Wurley Gig a bit so him and drew not necessarily to publish it but to like work on it and see if it was viable for them. So that was maybe a year of like I would do a bit of design work and then I would hand it over to them and they would do some design and development and it kind of became more of a map based game where you were like moving around London to take action. The kind of risk element of it moved from being like rolling dice to see what happened to becoming a deck of cards that had like they were they were just like a normal deck of playing cards with numbers and four suits. And initially they were just like, they were just a measure of how much risk you had. But then eventually they also became like indicative of the kinds of things that you needed to put on the parties in the Molly house. So they were both like assets and at risk liability at the, at the same time. I think that was when the game really started to like gel together and turn into to kind of where it's ended up. So yeah, that's, <laughs> that's kind of been a long process, of like three years of, of that.
0: So I think one of the things that you mentioned was the push your luck mechanism. And one of the things that really stood out to me was this game feels like living in the time must have been because you're, you're trying to do things, you're trying to gather things, but you're trying not to get Uh, a huge amount of attention doing it or else you're going to get caught and there's going to be big consequences to that so I I think that this game really does a great job of recreating that feeling and one thing that I've noticed a lot more as I play more and more historical games is having those emotions having those feelings is so incredibly important to making these games successful do you agree with that
1: yeah, yeah, yes, definitely. Like, I think when I started designing the game, I think accurate simulation was the most important thing that I was going for. But I think I've realised through the process, capturing the emotions is actually the most important part of it, like like you say. So, yeah, I think an, another important part is the, the informer kind of mechanisms in, in the game. So whenever you're caught in the game, you... Have to take these guilt tokens, they're called. So if you're caught by a constable, you take a number of them, depending on how many matching cards you had to the constable. And then you have to either, uh, well, you have to keep all of them, but you can choose to keep, if you drew informer tokens, you can choose to keep one of them. And that changes how you play the game. So it changes your objective. So players who aren't informers want the Molly House to stay open. They lose if the Molly House closes at the end. There's like a rage track that will move along depending on uh, how the how the players behave in the game Um, but the informers their objective is to get the molly house closed they're working with the constables uh, to achieve their aims but they have like they have some perks like they can lie about what's in their hand which other players can't so if they're about to get caught they can just pretend everything's fine so yeah i think that choice of whether to become an informer or not is like i mean I don't, I don't know if it's the same for everyone but every time i even consider it i feel terrible about myself um, yeah. and that's the that's the that's the idea like <laughs> you should you should feel terrible about that
0: so that was one thing that stonewall uprising really did for me was capture that you know emotion like this game does as well And one of the conversations I would have with people about the game was, well, I don't like it. And I would ask why. And they said, well, this half that I don't want to play as, as man, it makes me feel bad. And I'm like, that's the whole point. You're not supposed to want to, you're supposed to feel horrible about that. That's the lesson that they're trying to teach in this game is this was a horrible, horrible thing. So it did its job. And I think that uh, the informer mechanism does the exact same thing.
1: Oh well, that's <laughs> that's great to hear because I think Taylor did a great job with Stonewall Uprising. Like, yeah, I I hadn't played it in person as the man before, and I played it uh, a couple of weeks ago. And just even even the thought of like, oh, I'm gonna buy a card that's called like hate groups or whatever it's called, and it's got a picture of the KKK on it. you like. This is this is absolutely horrible and mm-hmm. I uh, you know my it kind of made my stomach wrench like just doing it which is exactly what it should do so yeah I think I think it's great
0: yeah and I I think it's one of those games that I play solo because I don't <laughs> want to play as a man but I do feel like it's a, a valuable teaching tool and mm-hmm. speaking of which you know a lot of cishet people can learn a lot about queer history through gaming and and that's something that we're starting to see as more of these topics get explored and more of these games start coming out do you feel like there's more and more room now in the industry for these stories to be told through gaming
1: yeah i i do i think what we're already starting to see and what we'll see more is like i think there is a real like want from people to to play these kinds of games that are historical but aren't war games like I think you think of historical games you think of of war games I think like that's the automatic connection and I think there's more and more games that are coming out that are bucking that trend and I really hope that's just going to continue and yeah I think it's important to tell all of these stories that I think are and uh, kind of underrepresented, like not even just in, in like tabletop gaming, but like, I think a lot of these subjects aren't even like known outside of that in, in like the mainstream. So yeah, I think it's really important. I think queer stories, queer histories are important to explore. I think another thing that's great about, I guess gaming as, as a way of representing these things is that a lot of queer histories maybe use different terminology, and maybe identities don't quite map one-to-one with uh, modern identities. And I guess not having to, like, have the language to fill in those gaps can actually be quite useful in getting you into, like, the mindset of someone in the time period, without kind of having to necessarily, like, I guess, use language to, to get that across, if that makes sense.
0: I think relying more on emotion and relying more on that feeling can kind of put you in that frame and put you in that mood and convey that information. Like you said, more than a language could, more than just reading, you know, it, it's more visceral to me to have something that I experience and that I go through and I actively participate in as opposed to reading it or as opposed to watching it on a screen having to live through that and having to make decisions based in that space is so incredibly different
1: yeah absolutely
0: so i think we are seeing the industry trending a little bit better for us as far as queer representation goes and and you know making safe spaces and this is something that i talk to a lot of people about since you started in the industry and in the hobby, have you seen improvements in the space and what further can be done to make this space a little bit safer for everybody?
1: I feel like I'm seeing a lot more representation, I guess, in, in the design community, of queer and trans people designing games. And even like, I think some, some established designers, I guess I'm seeing more of them like i guess being being more vocal if if they are um, from the community like talking about you no know, identity and their experiences in that I think in terms of like games themselves i mean I, th- I think this has been the case for a while but i think board games are definitely like behind tabletop role-playing games in terms of like representation and also kind of discussing that representation um, in the games themselves and like the the kind of safety tools that are in, included in a lot of G's and I think also like I think this is changing but there are a lot of RPGs that are from like a queer point of view in which you play a queer character and that's like the point of the game I've seen a lot of board games where you like can play queer coded characters or maybe characters whose backstory is like hinted at or explicitly queer but it's rare that you're put into the position you play this game as a queer person like that's that's the character you're inhabiting when you play this game so I think maybe we're seeing a bit more of that but I still think it's like light years behind the RPG world
0: so I I think we're moving the needle forward but there is still room for improvement and there's room for more vocal, more bold, more very deliberate stories about queer representation and other Mm. representation as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yep, agree.
0: So you mentioned your music. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, I'd say I'm a semi-professional musician. So I do play paid gigs um, here and there. So um, double bass is my main instrument. I play a few other things as well. So I play a lot of improvised music, kind of free improv. So you go to a place, that you don't discuss what you're going to play, and you just kind of start. So hmm. I do a lot of that. I also have a lo-fi synth pop alter ego uh, called Wendy Miasma, and yeah, I, it it's it's very silly. There's lots of uh, props and costume changes and uh, that kind of thing. So. Yeah, I kind of of play all, all sorts of different things. I've been in like folk bands and jazz bands and punk bands. So yeah, I'm, I like to do, do a bit of everything.
0: Is having something that you can kind of switch up to, you mentioned that variety and diversity of music styles that you're involved with. Does that kind of satisfy your creativity a little bit more than just doing one specific type of music?
1: yeah yeah absolutely like i think i need that kind of variety i think it keeps the creativity going and you also kind of notice all the parallels between all these different kinds of music and all the things you can bring from one genre to another so yeah i think that's really valuable and in games too like i think it's good to play lots of different types of games
0: absolutely it is so what's on your table other than molly house right now
1: so Myself and a friend, have got really obsessed with the Shipwreck Arcana which is a cooperative kind of limited communication logic game about trying to guess what number is in the other person's hand but you've got the only way you can kind of communicate information is you've got these kind of tarot-like cards which have uh, statements on them about like uh, where you can place numbers. So. There might be a card that's like, if... Uh, so you, you have two numbers. You, it might say, if the uh, other number in your hand is a 1, 4, or 7, you can put uh, the other number um, on this card. Uh, it's that kind of thing. I really love, like, there's so much information you can give by not just where you put the number, but also where you don't put the number. Um, and you're kind of trying to trying to... Communicate so much in just like doing one thing which is putting a number next to a card and it's yeah it's really it's a really beautiful game i really love it
0: that sounds amazing i need to check that out i haven't even heard about
1: oh yeah it's very cool you should you should check it out for sure
0: oh definitely and how can people get a hold of you on socials
1: oh so i'm well so i'm kind of still on the website that used to be called twitter i still call it twitter (laughs) <laughs> i mean i'm not going to call it the other thing so that's exactly sure. exactly <laughs> so on there i am y-u-n-g-y-l-e-k and i'm on blue sky as well I'm as Jamara kelly which is j-a-r-m-a-r-a uh, kelly
0: oh perfect well <laughs> joe it has been such a pleasure getting to talk with you today and just want to remind people that molly house is on kickstarter today go check it out it's a fantastic game you're gonna love it and it's necessary playing as far as i'm concerned like (laughs) this is to me a a story that's as worth telling as uh, the stonewall uprising is because it's part of our history and people need to know about it I agree completely. Yes.
1: Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me,
0: Arwen. And I think that's going to do it for us today. You can check out our website at cardboardtime.com. Our Instagram and Twitter are at cardboard underscore time. And I am also on blue sky at cardboard time. And we have a discord on the tabletop express server. Uh, we have a little corner over there that uh, I randomly post to, and I'm trying to participate as much as I can in the community, Uh, so just shoot me an email for an invite, or get a hold of me on socials, and we are more than happy to invite you over there to join us. It is a fantastic little group, uh, wonderful people uh, to interact with over there, and a wonderful community that's being fostered, a very nice, very safe community. Uh, And then any questions, suggestions, or ideas for discussion topics, please email cardboardtime at gmail.com. And as always, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you around the table next week for another episode of Cardboard Time.